able to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doin' Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And it's approximately 4 o'clock and we'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Today we have a very um, special broadcast and we're going to be speaking with two, two guests um, one of them is Rupert Mann, who is the author of the book um, Pentridge, Voices from the Other Side, and we'll be speaking a lot about, about this book and promoting it. And um, one of the people in the book is Ray Mooney, who has been in Pentridge himself. Um, hello to both of you. Hi. G'day, Marissa. Welcome. So basically, just to give a little bit of an introduction, we'll be... Um, We'll be talking mainly about the historical context of what happened at Pentridge, particularly in the 60s and 70s, and we'll talk about some of the um, most of the people in, in, in the book that, that have been in prison, and Rupert has done a fantastic job of, of really bringing out the voices, the voices of um, of the prisoners, and I was saying that to you, Rupert, on air, um, on the phone today. Mm. Yeah, so Thank it's approximately four o two. So I think you know, let's just relax. Don't worry about anything. It's 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 a a very informal um, show today. We're going to be having a discussion, and you two um, will just support each other throughout the show, and we'll just have a chat. Yeah, great. So, Sounds Rupert, good. did you want to start off um, just by talking about the book and explaining? What happened? What led up to the project? Well, uh, you know, like a lot of people who um, who are from Melbourne, born in Melbourne, I grew up here, um, you know, I always knew Pentridge as that place out in Coburg. It kind of loomed over the city and um, it was a huge part of its identity. And um, I was probably, I don't know, five or six when I went past there with my dad in the car and, um, you know, looked at this forbidding place and asked him, what is that? And he said, well, that's Pentridge. That's where the bad people go, he told me. And I looked back at those walls with a fascination. What does he mean by bad people? Who are the bad people? How do they decide who the bad people are? And what's it like in that world? What's it like on the other side of those walls? That was my initial fascination with Pentridge and kind of with prisons. Um, I think a lot of people are really interested in prisons. Not exactly sure why. Um, and later, as a teenager, I used to actually jump the walls of Pentridge and, um, and explore that place just after it had been decommissioned around 2000. And it was this incredible, evocative, historic, Landscape. It, it had it had sort of fallen into disrepair. Uh, nothing had really been touched at that point. And I went overseas, came back 
um, and saw that half half of what I knew as a as a teenager this this incredibly powerful populated historic set of buildings uh, was largely demolished and there wasn't much work being done to record that history and so that really triggered me to um, to photograph the buildings initially which I did and then as I began to meet people who were actually in Pentridge and knew Pentridge during its operational life I realised quickly that uh, that was the real story of Pentridge and that's what had to be part of this project. It wasn't enough just to record the buildings and, and photographically record the architecture and that physical heritage. There was a lived experience of people who knew that place, um, who could tell stories, amazing stories. So that's how it sort of came about. It's very interesting and, and, and in fact, indeed, one of the things that uh, I find quite difficult is when you have lived experience and it's not acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. And I can tell you, um, and Ray can talk about this from yeah. his own experience, but I can tell you to to mention some of the other people in the book, someone like Brian Morley, who was um, a witness to Ronald Ryan's execution and stood a few feet away when Ryan was hanged. Can you a, tell us about that execution? Because mm. I, I don't think a lot of listeners would know. Mm, what, sure. what do you mean by that? Well, Ronald Ryan was the last man to be hanged, uh, the last in person in Australia to be hanged in Australia, and he was hanged in D Division in Pentridge. It was a controversial case. It wasn't cut and dry at all, and there were great protests at the at the prison and widely and a lot of debate, um, and the Premier Balti at the time pushed it through, hanged him. And um, Ryan, um, Brian Morley went in there as a, as a journalist as a legal witness amongst, I think, 10 or 11 other people to stand in front of the gallows and watch that execution happen as a, as a, as a witness to it, to bear witness to it. And um, Brian went in there and he stood there and it was kind of too late for him by the time he realised that uh, what he was about to witness, what he was about to see happen, and he, it was too late to pull out. And so, um, yeah, he saw a man hanged, few feet in front of him um, and when I when I first interviewed him he refused he refused to go back into Pentridge he wouldn't he wouldn't be part of it um, he would was happy to tell me the story Brian Brian Morley yep but he didn't want to go back into Pentridge and it was it was as you say it was the realization on his part that the people who owned the the division at the time were hiring it out for uh, as a party venue basically and he'd seen photographs of people uh, draping themselves over the gallows with champagne and all the rest of it. And I think he was pissed off, really, like a lot of the other people were in this book, that their personal history and their personal heritage and their lived experience was actually being swept under the carpet by the development process. So, yes, I think it was a, a really important part of, the, part of the book. It'll be interesting to see if we have any, any listeners amongst the the developers today or whether there'll be any embarrassment? Well, they should be a little embarrassed, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so, because it, because the history does need to be acknowledged. And, and you know, I was reading that you were, you actually weren't allowed, were you, to no, go? No, the, the developers who owned it at the time, um, n- not the current developers. It's been sold many times sure. over the years. 
But yeah, the developers who owned it at the time, company have since gone bankrupt. Um, they this was sort of the height of the financial crisis, and I wrote to them and and requested. I did all I could to get their permission, and wanted their support to do the book, and they repeatedly denied that support and wouldn't let me into the prison. But at the same time, they didn't secure the prison. So it was pretty easy to get in there and walk around and take photos. And, and many times there were people who would let me in, uh, workmen, tradesmen who were there would let me in, take a few shots. So over the years, um, we sort of amassed this, this collection of photographs and these visits with former prisoners and former staff. That's, that's great. And, and so just to, to conclude that, that topic then, so on the 3rd of February 1967... Um, so Brian stood before the gallows um, when when the, the the guy was was guided out, and who was that? That was that was Ronald Ryan. Ronald Ryan mm. was was guided to the gallows. Mm, that's right. Yep, yep. And you describe it quite. Ray, feel free to, to jump in too if you, if sure, you want thanks, to. Marissa. Did you want to make any comments? Look, at this uh, stage, it's so interesting listening to yeah. Rupert that I'm just fascinated listening to him. Yeah, just I have read that you. chapter and it's one of the best chapters in the book. In fact, the book's worth buying if only to read that chapter. It's Absolutely. Sensational. I mean, I won't read it all because otherwise it wouldn't be a surprise. But <laughs> no one would buy it, you know. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> but, but I will say, and, and am I able to just... To just um, not paraphrase, but just summarise some of this because it is really interesting. Like, please do yeah. um, the way that that um, it's described in Brian's chapter about Ryan being guided out of the the condemned cell to what's known as a trap, mm-hmm. and um, and how a, a hood was lowered over the face, mm-hmm. and then the hangman threw open the trap, and then you've got the iron doors crashing back, mm. and and then that's it, you know, and then they, he goes towards the gallows, right? Yeah, and it's really, um, you know, one of the things that stuck with me when I interviewed Brian was, um, you know, he could hardly recount a few words of that story without breaking down. And this is a pretty tough-looking journalist, you know. Uh, and I, um, I was so impressed by that. I was impressed by his honesty yeah. and his integrity as a man to be able to show that emotion about that issue. And I was also um, impressed that he'd been in there for only three hours and that's the impact Pentridge had on him. How so long for, was he in for? Um, three, he was literally there for three hours. Yep. He came in, he witnessed the execution and he left, did his reporting. But one of the things he, he mentions, I mean, it, it, it's in the transcript of the interview, I note where he, where he breaks down. And it's very interesting to map where he breaks down. And it's often those little moments. And one of them was when he, he said he, was, um, uh, he walked into a gymnasium a few months after the execution and he heard the twisting of a rope. You know, that sort of creaking of a oh, rope yeah. is hanging. And it... it, it you know, he sort of sent a chill down his spine, and he couldn't. He had to leave. He couldn't. He couldn't experience that. And it was just that sound of the of the creaking of a rope that has stuck with him for the rest of his life. And um, another one he mentioned is when, and Ray Ray may may remember this. Apparently, they used carbolic acid to clean Pentridge a lot in those days, and they'd cleaned D Division, the wing, and it's it smelt of carbolic acid. And when he smells that today, he still 
gets chills and he can't, you know, he's got to leave where he is or a, a huge emotional response. And that's a guy who only spent three hours in Pentridge. Now, for people who worked there and were imprisoned there for, for decades, you know, the impact of that place, the, the collected ability of that place to impact and destroy people's lives um, through the experiences there, through its sort of the the architecture, through the institutionalised behaviour of the people who ran it and the other prisoners towards towards each other in some cases. You know, it's it's a place that's had an enormous impact on so many people's lives and I'd say tens of thousands of them, if not more, are still alive today. Oh, definitely, Rupert. Um, interestingly, I went into prison the year after in 68 and uh, it was an incredible time because there was that dichotomy of power in the prison that suddenly the prison officers knew they had an amazing power. Here was a person who had just been executed because they had killed a prison officer. Mm. That gave them an incredible power. Mm. So it was a very hard time to be there uh, in the aftermath of that hanging. Luckily, it turned out to be the last hanging in Australia because there was such a like a, a, a groundswell of opposition to the way that Ronald Ryan was hung, yeah. especially when it was shown that the evidence was very dicey. Today he'd never been found guilty, not on uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, no way in the world. Mm. Uh, but they were quite intent on hanging him at that stage. So, yeah, so I was there in the 16th. You mentioned that carbolic acid. That's interesting. That was the same stuff that was called fennel in, in our day. We just called it fennel. That was put into what was called the shit buckets, and a lot of the cells were unsewered. So you lived with that smell your entire life. Yeah. Mm. So it's like a flashback. It's a flashback of what happened. I think it was for Brian, yeah, yeah, when he smelt that and when he heard that sound. Um, Yeah, I think it was. And he was, without going into specifics, so he was convicted of a crime? Ronald Ryan? Um, Brian. No, no. no. Oh, so he went in to, to just witness. That's right. What yeah. I see. Yeah, he was he was a I witness, see. a legal witness to the um, ah. to the execution. Because so he, he was a well respected journalist of the day. And they allowed it. They actually expected it. Wow. So um, there were eleven people who witnessed the execution, and they arrived. I think uh, three or four other journalists, at least. I think Tom Pryor was one yeah, of them. Yeah, Tom who Pryor, um, who is a, a well known journalist in in Melbourne. And um, it was, you know, like like you see in the movies when people go and witness an execution, uh, lethal injection execution, something like that. In this case, it was a hanging. There was no separation between them. There, there was a sheet that was that was draped in front of the gallows, so they couldn't see Ryan as he was dying on the end of the rope. Of course, um, but it was a few feet away, and I think there were eleven people at that at that uh, execution. And as Brian said, it affected everyone. It affected all of them quite yeah. quite deeply. They invited the journalists in because they expected them to be advocates for the system, to show how effectively it was done and how humanely it was done. And of course, it worked in exactly the opposite. Absolutely, no. It's it's look. It's it's a very important thing, isn't it? It's it, it was a turning point, wasn't it? When yeah. when hangings were banned, and um, it wasn't till much later, actually, that they finally got. I think it was seventy four or seventy five wow. that it okay. was actually taken off the um, off the books, off the statutes. But it, but that was the last one, and mm-hmm. you know, even that was a push for Balti. There was a lot of opposition. Um, it was a political push. 
absolutely. And and he came, Brian campaigns quite a lot for for capital punishment, but yeah, against it, it against does, yeah. it. Sorry, yeah. um, mm. against capital punishment. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> words are just so inadequate, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> They're so inadequate. Isn't it true, though? Like, you, you write a book and then you think, do you ever think when when you got to the end of the book, Rupert, mm. did you ever think to yourself, you described it, but words just can't describe it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, you know, I look at this book and I think it's a, it's a, for all, you know, it's, it's a wonderful collection of stories um, and that's the strength of it is the the stories of the people who are in it um, but absolutely it I mean it firstly it cannot at all represent the the lived experience of the people who were there at all it can give some insight but also it can't you know my experience is that I revisited this place with these people and that was a great privilege for me and it was often a very um a very powerful experience, you know. I think of uh, Noel Tovey, yes. um, amazing man, amazing man. He's in the man. book too. He is, yes. Noel Tovey's in the book. Um, one of Australia's foremost Indigenous artists uh, went overseas to work for many years, but had an had an incredible, dif- had incredibly difficult upbringing, um, and he uh, was raped by a prison guard in his cell. The, soon after he arrived um, and tried to commit suicide soon after. And he, the way he describes it is, is he, was, he was stopped by the voices of his ancestors um, oh, yes. and he was told that he would find a better life. Oh. And so he didn't do it. And actually the moment that we walked into that cell was the first time he'd been back in that cell having lived the life he was promised. By his ancestors. It's very powerful. And it was a fan, it was an extremely powerful moment. It was an honour to be there um, and see that you know he he was going back to that place where um, where he'd almost committed suicide and he'd sort of teetered right on the edge. And it's a testament to the strength of his character, to the resilience of his spirit that he um, he did find that life and he he you know he 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 continues to be an, an inspirational voice for um, many people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous in this yeah, country. Yeah. And Marissa, if I can just go sure. back on a point that you made, that words can't describe it. Um, the good thing about this book is that it's it's a dual book. It's not just uh, a collection of people's voices. It's also a photographic book because yeah. Rupert's a very professional photographer. And part of the deal was that um, he took us all back inside and photographed us in various situations. So what the book is, it's a unique collection photographically of something that we've lost. And and while that's like I'm just so disappointed that it has been lost, our heritage has been lost, while that's a, a terrible situation, it actually makes this book all the more important because this book will survive for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a yeah. beautifully bound, as you've seen, as, as you can tell, it's a beautiful book. But the photography in there is just outstanding, exceptional. And I do know that I think you're having um, a photographic exhibition along with the launch yes. of the book uh, that the public will get the chance to go along and see um, the exhibition of your photographs. But yep. this book... It, you wouldn't just purchase this book for the stories that are in there. No, no. You would purchase it for the photographs. The photographs are unique. They're going to stand forever. 
Absolutely. And what are the details of that Thank exhibition? Thank you, Ray. That's very kind of you to say it's that. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about supporting each other. Oh, yeah. No, I, I've seen over the years, I've been lucky enough to be involved. My other job is I've taught my whole life people how to write and, and to, to do books. Sure. Uh, this is one of the best books I've ever seen, ever. Um, it is worth buying, if only for the introduction that Rupert has written. It is the best expose uh, essay I've ever read about prisons and I'm lucky enough to have read nearly everything that's been written in Australia on the prison system. Uh, it, it is outstanding. It's head and shoulders above everything that's been written and that puts into the shadows some quite brilliant books that have been recently released. You know, John Killick's book, um, Gambling for Love, is one of the best um, uh, non-fiction books you'll ever read about Pentridge. Um, Don Osborne's book on Pentridge, um, I just forget, um, Pentridge and I forget the rest of the mm-hmm. subtitle. He was a teacher when I was in there and he recently put out a book on Pentridge. Um, Fantastic. Brie Carlton, who you might have interviewed mm. at some stage. Oh, yes, wrote, I have. Well, She's she, done some extensive research, hasn't she? Oh, and also yeah. wrote that book, in uh, Imprisonment Resistance, one yes. of the best yep. exposés ever on Pentridge. About Jica, uh, particularly. On Jica. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Rupert's introduction, and it's a long introduction, is the best thing I've ever read on prisons ever. That's fantastic. Wow. No, and, and look, it means this a is, lot to me to hear that. No, yeah, it's, thank it's, you. And that, that's true. This is that's someone from who, who coming from Ray, where you're in the book. But before we get on to to that, um, let's talk. Let's tell the the listeners about the exhibition where it's going to be. Um, yeah, sure. Well, it's um, it's on at Schoolhouse Studios. Um, down in 81 Rupert Street in Collingwood. Um, and it's open daily from 1st till uh, 7th of December. Fantastic. Yep. That, that's great. And thank you, Ray, for, for talking about the photographic stuff because that that's really important, isn't it? Look, I think so because it's so easy to take a camera and to record... Uh, what it is you want to leave for posterity. But we're talking about an um, an institution that the heritage of it has been waylaid. It's been developed. We're never going to be able to see it. It's not like going to the old Melbourne jail where it's basically um, in situ. This is a whole different system that has been completely developed. And Rupert's been, he's had the foresight to see yeah. years ago that the significance of this needs to be captured photographically, and that's what he's done. Absolutely. It's approximately 4.22, and in case listeners have just tuned in, this is the Doing Time Show, and you're listening to um, an interview and discussion with Rupert Mann, who is an author and um, has written a, a book about Pentridge, Voices from the Other Side, and also Ray Mooney is in the studio as well, and he is also in the book, and he's also been to Pentridge. So before we go any further, I think um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually go into an announcement, and we'll come back. Let's don't go away. And you're back with the Doing Time show and it's approximately 4.24. So we're having a discussion just before that announcement about the photographic exhibition and talking about um, the intro of the book and, and many, many other things. And I, I thought it would be useful at this point um, just to just for you, Ray, to, to talk about 
how you came to be into the in, in the book and um, discuss some of the things that are important to you. Okay. Um, Rupert contacted me probably nine or ten years ago, would it be now? Would it be that yeah, long ago? Yeah, something like that. Yep. And just out of the blue and said... Um, I'm interested in talking to ex-inmates of Pentridge and and if you are prepared to talk to me, I'd also like to go back into the prison and photograph you in various situations uh, because the prison has been run down and left to rack and ruin and it would be really interesting to get uh, your story along with the story of many other people uh, and to photograph them almost in juxtaposition with the overgrowth of what had happened within the prison. And I thought, yeah, sure, like, not a problem. I'm, if I could do anything to sort of help a really worthy project, I wouldn't. When I met Rupert, um, I fell in love with the project. I could see that he knew what he was talking about. I could see he was a professional photographer and a very good photographer. Um, he was very easy to work with. Um, and... It was a very good project. I liked the idea of the project. And because he was very keen on capturing how H Division, which was the maximum punishment division within Pentridge, he was very keen on capturing how that was left to ruin. Um, and he knew that I had done quite a lot of writing about H Division because... When I was inside Pentridge for seven and a half years, I spent four and a half months in Pentridge in 1973, uh, and it was a very brutal place. In Hayes Division. In, sorry, I, I, yes, <laughs> in in Hayes Division in 1973, yeah. and it was a very brutal place to to be. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a cliche to say the only thing I let you do was survive, but it um, it was something that I wanted the world to find out about and I made it my task to, while I was in there, to collect as many stories as I possibly could about people who, from people who had been in H Division. And that, in many ways, reflected exactly what Rupert was now doing many, many years later. So in the interim, when I got out, I'd written a play and that had been made into a film about Pentridge called Every Night, Every Night. Rupert had seen it, knew about it. And as a result of that, that's why he'd contacted me. And um, I just liked his attitude to what he wanted, he was trying to do and the way he was going about doing it. So we clicked and, um, and we've been friends, uh, email friends ever since. Fantastic. And I believe you, you actually um, were in... In that particular, what division was it? Division H division. H division. Yeah. And that was um, after the Jenkinson inquiry. Yes. Well done, Marissa. That's really good because not a lot of people knew that they had an inquiry, and the inquiry was what had happened was H division was the punishment division within Pentridge, set up in 1958. Prior to 1958, there were punishment sections within the prison that were basically open labour yards where people had to break rocks and they were flogged mercifully, mercifully uh, for whatever small infractions. Uh, and that ultimately uh, was, uh, that became, uh, when, a, when a prisoner violently escaped, they set up hate division to contain the, uh, the, the worst of the worst within, within Pentridge. And it was a very, it was a prison run along military lines where you had to wear a special uniform. You were never allowed to look at officers in the eye. You had to look down, 
down at the floor all the time, find your spot. Everything was done on a quick march. You were flogged with batons everywhere you went. You had to break rocks during the daytime for about uh, seven to eight hours per day, depending upon. That was uh, on the weekdays, on the two on the two Saturday and Sunday, you didn't have to break rocks, but you were in the labour yards where the rocks were. Uh, it was a really atrocious place. Many prisoners were f- uh, committed suicide, injured themselves, uh, and as a result of what you'd probably call prison resistance throughout the world that emanated round about 1968, it moved into H- into into Pentridge Prison, and prisoners started rebelling against the fact that brutality was getting out of control in H Division. Uh, to the point where there were riots in the prison, there were riots down in H Division. The government was forced to hold a Royal Commission into Pentridge. That Royal Commission specifically looked at brutality within H Division. As a result of that, a, an inquiry was set up, we now call, which was known as the Jenkinson Inquiry, because the person who was in charge of it was Jenkinson, a judge. He brought down his findings, which basically uh, cleared all the waters of any institutionalised brutality, said that there were about five exceptional situations where brutality had happened and could be proven. But basically it, was, it wasn't something that, was, um, that we really believe was out of control. And, and, and if, if it was out of control, it definitely wasn't illegal. As a result of that inquiry, not one prison officer was ever charged. They all, all the prison officers un, who were, who gave evidence on oath, denied that they'd ever done anything wrong in Hates Division, despite the fact that hundreds of prisoners gave evidence that they did. Uh, when the inquiry came out, it was basically known by prisoners as what we called a whitewash. It is. It was a whitewash then, yeah. So I, I, I went down to Hates Division after that whitewash because. Basically what happened was the prison was aware that it was going to be a whitewash and there were there was sort of um, what you'd call, oh, not a revolution, but yeah. there were revolts and, um, and, 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 the, and the prison blew up basically and I was a spokesperson during the time where it was illegal to be a spokesperson and was put in H Division. Uh, and as a result of my experience down there, I made a my role in life to ensure that the world learned what Hates Division was like and what had happened. So as I said before, I got all the prisoners who I knew who were still in there to give me those stories, which they did. I was able to smuggle them out in 1975 when I was ultimately released. Yep. Wrote the play every night, every night, which was made into a film and became a little bit sort of... um, it, It redressed the fact that it was denied by the institution that there was brutality in Hates Division. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, this is this is great, and, and and in fact, I wanted to make the comment as well that really, do things ever change? I mean, I'm not saying that things haven't changed, but we do have a ballooning um, prison population now, and things are now very clean and sterile, aren't they? Very clean and sterile, but but underneath, has it really changed? And it's just something I wanted to to throw out. Yeah, as as well. Look, it's it's a, it's a, it's a probably. The- a hard one for me to answer because I haven't been back in the system for a while, but everything I read, in fact, one of the articles in this book, one of the really good articles is written by Craig Minot, who is still inside, and he will argue exactly the opposite, that while 
it is clean and sanitised, it is actually worse than what it used to be. Yeah, yeah. Because his art, if you get the chance to read his very educated um, article... It's in the book. Absolutely. Yeah. And he makes the point that the psychological torture is just as bad as the physical torture. In fact, he makes the point that he'd much prefer the physical torture because he spent a long time in H's division also. He'd prefer the physical torture... He'd prefer the physical torture as opposed to the ongoing, never-ending psychological torture. Absolutely. So you, you're, the chapter in, in the book that, that, you, well, that, that Rupert um, organised and that you contributed to, that you, you, like you're in the book as well, that talked a lot about that inquiry and it talked a lot about the strike too, didn't it? Yes, it did because um, it talked about there were a lot of strikes. Yes, that's the that's the thing that's a little bit tricky for people to understand because yeah, it was yeah. an ongoing, it was almost a movement, and there was trouble all the time in the prison for about four to five years that I was there. It mainly resulted from a power struggle between the prison officers' union trying to con trying to control the fact that they deserve to be paid more, which I agreed they should have been paid more, uh, and arguing that they should have been paid more because they were in a dangerous environment. Now, part of their strategy was to ensure that it was a dangerous environment, so they would do everything they possibly could to get the prisoners to riot and rebel, and naturally we'd fall in, put right into their hands, and, and we were front-page news for years and years. So it's like a divide and conquer? Uh, sort of. It, it, it basically was a strategy that was that was designed to to make the prison officer's profile a lot more powerful within society. I didn't have a problem with that because I actually believe that we should have sure. educated prison officers who are paid a very a very good wage. I really believe that. It's very interesting, and, and history plays such an important part, and, and particularly photographic history as well. In addition, um, and. It, It'll be very interesting at some stage um, to have you two back and, and look at some of the parallels back then and look at today and, and have a look at that. But let's, um, let's play a song. Um, do you two like Kev Carmody? Yes. Mm, yeah, and Fantastic. Rivers of Tears. I'm going to River <laughs> of Tears. And, in fact, Paul Kelly was also in the book as well, and I believe Paul Kelly played... Yep. In the prison, I'm going to actually do my best to try and get some music um, of his to to put on the show if I can. But he actually did a lot of um, work with Kev Carmody anyway. Mm -hmm. um, he's pretty amazing. Should we talk about Paul Kelly after this? Great. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just um, play the song. And you're back with the you're back with the Doing Time show, and this is Three CR Community Radio eight five five AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. So Ray and Rupert, we've we've had quite an enlightening discussion, haven't we? Really, mm. um, yep. about who else is in, so Paul Kelly's in the book too. Yes, there's a there's a chapter uh, that looks at the musicians who visited Pentridge. Um, many people went to Pentridge to play, including Roy Orbison, went in twice, I think, Eartha Kitt, uh, Johnny Farnham, Cold Chisel, oh. Rose Tattoo. So Paul Kelly and the Coloured Girls were there, and uh, Greg McCainch and the Skyhooks. So the two in the book are, are Paul Kelly and um, and Greg McCainch. Oh, there are two. That's right. There are two musicians. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, and I, I thought it was a really interesting perspective on the prison. You know, they um, they went in there briefly, um, and they give a brief account of their impression of Pentridge. But it's they're both powerful ones because um, you know I think the thing that, that comes out for them is sort of this. I think Greg calls it this uh, overwhelming sadness that he felt from the audience. Um, and, you know, uh, the Skyhooks went in there in full glam rock regalia, which involves makeup, lipstick, uh, all the rest of it, yeah, like yeah. shiny spandex, high heels and all the rest <laughs> of it. I don't, I don't know what the prisoners would have been thinking. Um, but, you know, Paul Paul's also been involved with um, the movie – of uh, Ray's play Every Night, Every Night. Alkanos Salimidos did that film. Fantastic film um, based on a fantastic play, a really important play. And uh, he wrote a song called Stand on the Cross. I think yeah. it's called Stand on the Cross. Oh, yeah. On the Cross. Um, and, you know, Paul, uh, Paul was really keen. Um, and he came out. We went out. We drove out there in, um, in my panel van. And we took some shots, and I dropped him back uh, in St Kilda. And um, you know, he was he was very generous with his time to come and do that. And uh, one of the things he says in the book is that he, you know, he's he'd do it any time. I mean, go and perform in prisons. You know, he's open yeah. to doing that. Yeah. So it's there. It's an interesting perspective. I mean, it's it's one of the most sort of removed from the um, the really strong experience of Pentridge, but the experience of going in there and performing to the audience was a really important one, a significant one. So those guys are in the book, and um, and two of the most important songwriters, I think, you know, Paul Kelly and Greg McCainch, um, pioneering Australian songwriters, and Greg McCainch was one of the first songwriters to really write about Melbourne. Um, was Australia. That Skyhooks? Skyhooks, yeah. That was my first band that I ever liked when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> you had good taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I must be old. <laughs> <laughs> so it's approximately 4.40 and look, time is just flying, isn't it? It's just, we've got about, about 18 minutes left, but... Mm. So how can we condense everything, do you think? I mean, obviously we're not going to mention everything, are we? Because otherwise no, no one will buy the book. <laughs> It'll make it too easy. <laughs> but we can't forget Uncle Jack Charles, though. No. Oh, yep. no. Yeah. Yep. I mean, everybody's important, of course, but yep. Uncle Jack Charles, um, Sister Claire, mm. who was, uh, I believe, someone who, who was a support person mm-hmm. for the prison in Pentridge. Yep. Um, and the prison officer or the ex-prison officer. Bob yeah, Gill. two former prison officers. There's Bob Gill yeah. and um, and Pat Merlo. That spun me right out when I read that account about Pat, uh, Pat though. Yeah, Pat's oh, is, wow. is a really powerful chapter. Very powerful. Um, her experiences there, particularly in B Annex. So uh, Pentridge actually had female prisoners for m- most of its life. Um, 54, I believe, they were moved out over to Fairley. Uh, then there was a fire at Fairley in 82. And so they temporarily moved all the women back into an annex of B Division. Now, B Division was the, the heavies uh, wing, the heavies division in Pentridge. Um, long-term prisoners, mostly. Uh, and so they just closed off a section of B Annex and threw the women in there. 
And these were, this is when the first four recorded suicides occurred in Victoria's, female suicides occurred in Victoria's prison history. She witnessed a lot. She saw a lot, yeah. And there's, um, you know, there's a harrowing story in there about her um, having to close the cell door on a, on a woman um, who was down on her one knee because she'd lost her leg. Um, having attempted suicide by throwing herself under a train after being bashed by her husband. And um, she was down on her one knee begging for Pat to give her her glasses so she could read a letter from her son. And Pat was told by her supervisor, she can't have the glasses, she's in observation, she was in an observation cell, lock the door and we've got to lock up. And um, Pat did all she could to get her supervising officer to allow this woman to read this letter, uh, she couldn't do it. And she said she had to close the gate in this woman's face. She arrived at work the oh, next morning. Oh, my goodness. And um, she'd committed suicide overnight. The woman had hung herself, hanged herself in her cell and, um, and committed suicide. And that had an enormous impact on Pat. You know, um, she... Uh, you know, she said to me she's never forgotten that, that, that she never got to read that letter. That woman never got to read that letter from her son. And she said, you know, this wasn't uh, – this was someone's mum. This was someone's Correct. partner. Um, and, you know, some of the other uh, prison officers that morning were joking about, you know, oh, this woman, she's not going to bother us anymore. And they were telling jokes about her when Pat arrived. And Pat was so horrified by that. Absolutely. And she wrote a book, didn't she? Screw she did. Revelations and Observations of a Prison Officer. Yep, a fantastic book. Yeah. And um, if you can find copies of it, I recommend it to everyone. It's, um, it's out of print now, but it's a fantastic book, a very honest book. And, uh, and you know... Um, Pat's one of the one of the both Pat and Bob are the unusually uh, honest and um, you know a lot of the I met a lot of former prison officers and I I, I say that you know a lot of them still man those towers absolutely they're still defending Pentridge and they're still defending what went on there and they're still towing the line and actually Pat and Bob were unusual um, in that they didn't do that you know Pat. You know, she says things like, uh, you know, the prisoners were like you and me, except they yeah. went the wrong way. She says there were, people, there were women in there that she knew who'd, uh, who were in for things that you and I had done that we hadn't got caught for, you know, mm. little things. And, um, you know, so, yeah, it's hugely significant voices because Pentridge was about the prisoners' experience and the prison officers' experience. I mean, they were they were two different sides of the bars, but they were both... Um, they're both important parts of the story of Pentridge in any prison. Absolutely. Now let's see if we can um, have some more music here and uh, we'll just, this is going to be um, a guessing game here. Hopefully it's Paul Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> you are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT. West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter.
Send me no more letters Nor ask me how I'm going It might make you feel better But it's none of your business knowing It's none of your business now You say you regret it And hope we can be friends You really just don't get it But none of this business can mend It's none of your business now doing time show and we're speaking with Ray and Rupert so we haven't got much time left but um I wonder I mean there's there's just so much to talk about isn't there you might have to we could be here till midnight really (laughs) (laughs) but Ray you wanted to say something look if I could just finish off by saying I'm just picking up on something you were saying before and it had to do with um how you were talking about Pat Merlot and what she'd been through when I read this book if I was studying um, uh, anything to do with the justice system or for, if I was a social worker, if I was looking at psychology, this is a terrific book that you would give to anyone who is interested in any of those academic areas uh, and anyone who is in the legal profession, uh, in the judiciary, 
um, especially to do with social working, um, anyone in the community's health centres, this is a terrific present to give them because each of these stories is an actual case study in itself. And it's a type of case study that, like what you were just talking about, what Rupert was saying about Pat, you don't get that. They're the type of stories you never, ever hear. No, but they're the important right. stories that academics need to know, and they need to know exactly what our history really is like. And this book is full of really good examples yeah, that yeah. would transfer into their learning. Absolutely. And, look, that's such a really important point and it, it should be actually in the universities as part of the, the social work degree you know you, you go out there in social work and people don't know it definitely sit on the criminology uh, um, uh, book list oh for sure one of the things that i found really interesting about um pat's account is um and i i caught myself doing this when i when i used to work in juvenile justice um in my 20s and that was that you know, someone would tell her something and then she wouldn't believe it mm. and then she'd have to clarify it with somebody else. So mm-hmm. her, her family got offended, didn't mm. they, Rupert? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Pat and, talks about that. Yep. And it's it's about being not paranoid but, you know, there's so much, so many lies, so many um, misconceptions, so, so many... I suppose state violence, yeah. isn't it? Institutional violence. Absolutely. That's that's part of the poison of Pentridge. Absolutely. You know, that's what it did to people's lives. The, the experience of prison, I think, does that. And, um, yeah, Pat, as she says, lost all trust. Uh, and I think it took her a long time to regain that for people and recover from from Pentridge. And, you know, for um, for people like Jack Charles, you know, it's one of the, one of the great indictments um, – in, is that when Jack Charles in this book talks about how he went into Pentridge, um, it was just another institution to him. And unfortunately, it's an experience that's all too common with our Indigenous Australians in this country. Um, you know, it's it's uh, both Noel and Jack uh, appalling experiences. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just amazing um, testament to the resilience of their character and their spirit that they... Uh, they're doing so well and doing amazing things and contributing so much. It was such an honour and privilege to have them in the book and to have met them and, and to know them. Um, yeah. For sure. So, Rupert and Ray, um, could you both talk about, I, I mean, I know, it promote uh, not promote, what, how, do, how do I say this? Um could you talk about how we can get access to your book, Rupert? And sure. also, I, before yep. we finish, I just can't resist. Sorry, Ray. I, I'd like to um, ha- for you to talk about um, your t- the title of your book, just so that people can get access to that as well, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so the the book is available in all, all bookstores at the moment. Um, Pentridge Voices from the other side. And uh, you can get more information about the book and the project and you can also purchase it online at pentridgeprison.org um, and there's more photographs and there's a bit more information about each, each of the people in the book and about why I did the book there. There's and a lot more information. There's a lot. Yeah. 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 And Ray's written a very important book um, which he'll t- tell us about. Um, the book I wrote is called The Ethics of Evil, Stories of H Division. It is only available as an e-book at the moment, and that 
documents the entire history of um, H's Division. Maybe I would add that uh, another book I wrote that was about Pentridge was called A Green Light. Mm. And I recently, tra- that's out of print at the moment, and I recently um, uh, transferred that into three standalone e-books. And the second book, um, A Green Light, The Kingdom of Men, is basically my experiences in Pentridge. Mm. And that's available, again, as an e-book on um, on all good Amazon. Hugely websites. insightful books. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. And how many how many people, Rupert? How many people in in your book have since passed on? Ah, well, um, one I'm not sure. I haven't been able to get in touch with him, Bob Skates. I've been, if, Bob, if you're listening, get in touch with me. I've yeah. been sending you emails, trying to get in touch. I hope he's uh, still with us. Um, but uh, Billy Longley passed away. Uh, Sister Claire McShay has passed away, and Bob Gill. Um, and you know, the, particularly Bob and uh, Billy, these were guys from a generation that's almost gone now in Australia. I think uh, Billy Longley's turn of phrase and um, his quiet determination. Uh, he's a very polite man, but he he had a rage in him. There's no doubt about that. And um, yeah, yeah it, it was a pleasure to go and sit with him and have cups of tea in his in his um, terrace in Mooney Ponds. I mean, he spoke about a Melbourne that's long long gone, I think. Yeah. I'll tell you something. I used to go to school in Coburg and I, I, I went to um, – I have a vision impairment and I went to an integrated school. And I'll tell you what, what was really strange and m- most people may laugh at me but I, I have to actually say this on air that on the way to school, like I, I, was, I was driven there from mm. Reservoir and I always used to feel when I, we were going past Pentridge. I felt it. Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise That's me at all. That's not silly, is it? No, I don't. That you know, a good friend of mine um, told me a friend of hers said, uh, and this friend of hers was a psychic, something like that, um, in that neck of the woods, and she said uh, she had a psychic sort of vision of Pentridge, like this giant buried black octopus that just yeah. had uh, tentacles spreading out all the way across uh, the country. And that's what it's like. I think it's got a, it's an enormous presence and it's impacted so many people's lives. And the intention of the people who built it and ran it impacted so many people's lives. It that really it just, it, it spread everywhere. It's um, yeah, hugely significant place in our social history. Very significant. And, and Ray and, and Rupert, I wanted to thank you both for, for coming onto the show. It's been very, very insightful and very enjoyable. And, Thank you. Thank um, you for having us. Total pleasure. It's been great. And we're going to podcast this show, so you'll be able to download that for your convenience. And so Beyond Zero is up next. Um, we're going to be going out soon with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, from the Rumpy Band. So it's goodbye from Marissa and goodbye from... Rupert and Raymond. Goodbye. Yeah, so um yeah, so I'll catch you all Nick every every Monday from four to five PM um for the Doin' Time show and we're going out now with our black our, our song Black Fella White Fella from the Rumpy Band. And yeah, check out check out the photo exhibition and also get um Rupert's book. Bye. Stay safe and stay strong. Thanks Look so after much. each other. Good on you, Marissa.
real 